Hello friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Happy New Year to you, our dear friends and listeners. We are so grateful to share time and conversation with you every week, and we wish you all the best in 2024. It was just one year ago that uh, on New Year's Eve, we lost the one and only Pope Benedict XVI. He was a saintly man who offered so much to us in his witness and his theology. Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register joins us to remember him a year later and what we are still learning about his life and legacy. But first, with the March for Life quickly approaching, as well as two events on the West Coast, we talk with Eva Montine about the West Coast Walk for Life, celebrating their 20th their 20th year of that event in San Francisco. Lila Rose of Live Action is headlining this year, along with other amazing voices for life. Joining us next on Conversations is Eva Montine. She's the co-chair of the Walk for Life West Coast, which will be taking place this month, January, on the 20th in San Francisco. And here on Conversations, we tend to be a little East Coast-centric, which is wrong of us because the the wild, beautiful West Coast of the United States is just as important as the East Coast. And in this pro-life battle that we we fight uh, on it, all all of us on our on our own levels, right, privately and publicly, the West Coast is very important. And and you know they say what happens in California eventually happens everywhere else, right? That California seems to be out there on the on the front lines. So thank you so much for joining us, Eva, on conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a big year for the Walk for Life West Coast. I think it's your, the twentieth year that that this um, this will be taking place. Is that true? That is very true, and I'm and we're all quite amazed that we're still we're still here after twenty years, and um, and we're going strong. So yes, we're we're definitely here. And and it's going to take place on the twentieth in San Francisco, and that's not is that it always take place in San Francisco because that's not a city one. Uh, associates, right, with a pro-life attitude? No, it's not. In fact, we've had a couple of city proclamations against us, and um, the city's not too pleased. But I have to say that um, doing it in San Francisco, all of us who work on the Walk for Life live in San Francisco, or at least in the surrounding cities. And so we were very proud of the fact that we were able to bring thousands and thousands of pro-lifers together in the heart of San Francisco. And with the complete and total support of the San Francisco Police Department, they have been wonderful to us. They've they've been with us every single year, and we couldn't do it without them. Oh, that's really nice to hear that the that the the city people, the people who work for the city, also support you, especially the police department. And I'm sure Archbishop Cordelion, who was a guest on this show just three or four weeks ago, and he's a friend of the shows. We love to have him on. I'm sure that he's probably a linchpin for for the for the pro-life movement there yes yes he's been joining the walk even when he was um stationed down in san diego he would come up for the walk so he's been with us every year for 
many, many years. I don't even know what, what year he started, but he's definitely a huge support. And we, we so appreciate him for his continued support. And he always shows up and, he, and he, he's with us every single year. So we're very pleased. And what, how many people do you expect, more or less? Yeah, that's a really hard call. And we get that question a lot because we don't have registrations. We don't have people that people don't need to sign up, et cetera. Um, but we're expecting probably between 20 and 30,000. And I know that's kind of a big uh, gap there, but um, it's it's just really hard to tell. I mean, we, we do have about 100 buses already signed up to who are coming from different cities around uh, the Bay Area and from out of state even. We've got Oregon, Nevada, Arizona people coming so um so i don't know i, I don't know what it'll be but it, whatever it is it usually looks huge <laughs> i know you know we have i i've been going every year to the one the march for life in dc even though this year i don't think i'm going to be going because of life getting being complicated now in january but um it's always very hard to figure out how many people attend and even there's um There's a complication with the press that they don't like to cover it and, and they, they tend to downplay the numbers. Uh, do you have that? Do you have that issue in San Francisco? Oh my goodness, yes. We, we could have tens of thousands, which we normally do, and yet they'll say a few hundred or a couple of thousand or, or yeah, definitely we get that a lot here. So, But that's okay. As long as they cover it and as long as people see that there is a pro-life presence here in the Bay Area and especially in San Francisco, that's the important part. So you don't feel like you're a tree following falling in the forest and nobody hears it. Like you, when you're in the march, you you feel that you are filling the city of San Francisco with with the beauty of the pro life message. Exactly, exactly. That's why we do it. And and one of my favorite. Uh, things about the walk was one time I was giving a talk at a parish about the walk uh, it was a conference at a parish in Oakland and right after me they had a couple of uh, high school students come up who had been regularly attending the walk and and they were to, to give their impressions and they, what they thought about the walk and 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 I'll never uh, forget the fact that each one of them said that they totally energized them uh, they went back to their schools and started pro-life clubs they did their essays on the pro-life movement and those are the reasons that we do this i mean it's it's very important to to show you know your that you have peers that that believe the that believe in the life message i really agree with you eva when i first started going to the march um i went first to our local marches here i live in miami and then started going to the one in dc as well and the i, I it was the i think the most energizing part about it was knowing that my own little private devotion to the pro-life cause was shared by so many fabulous people and so many young people because it also fills you with hope for the future when you see all those young faces at these oh events. absolutely yes absolutely and especially the the families with the strollers and the young kids and and the fact that they're meeting each other and they're making lifelong friends it's it, it is a very powerful reason for all of us to keep doing what we're doing because all of us who work on the walk for life have full-time jobs elsewhere we do this on a volunteer basis and those uh, results really keep us motivated what do you think the cultural impact is in general not just in san francisco but of these pro-life demonstrations across the country that take place around the anniversary of roe v wade well it's very important because i think i think if we stopped 
uh, these marches, people wouldn't be able to get energized. People wouldn't be able to learn more about how, what they can do for the Polarite movement. Like, for instance, this year, we're going to focus on making sure to, to press um, voting. You know, you have to vote your conscience. You have to vote the lo for life. And so, so it's very important for these uh, events to keep the message alive, to keep the message going, to get it out to as many people as possible. Like I said, we had those students that came to the walk and yet they went and took it back to their communities and to their schools the message just keeps growing and growing so it's i think it's very important to keep these going you know for so many decades the these marches and all our pro-life efforts really were centered around the injustice of the roe v wade decision in 1973 and now th things have shifted radically how tell us how how do you see that shift what has changed and how should our approach be changing as well as pro-life people? Well, I, I, along with the rest of the pro-life movement, was very excited and happy when the, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It was, it was a huge, monumental win for the pro-life movement. However, ever since then, there's been so many uh, ballots on different in different states, and they've all failed in terms of protecting life. So there is still so much work to be done. In fact, it seems to me like the work just should increase, and we need to do more because apparently on, on the low grassroots level we're not winning yet so we need to we need to keep the pressure on we need to keep the message out there that abortion is not a solution to a crisis pregnancy we have the supreme court is is going to be looking at very soon the issue of chemical abortion and um that that's that's something that we all have to consider when in our pro-life struggle because abortion is is uh, becoming more and more a, an issue of, of medication and very early in the pregnancy. How are you addressing this at all in your in in, in this year's uh, march in the West Coast? Um, not not this year, but we have been planning and thinking about that because, especially here in California, um, Gavin Newsom has made this a sanctuary state, and he wants to be able to ship anywhere in the country, in fact, anywhere in the world, uh, medication from here. For and so, it is definitely a huge issue, especially for us here in California. Um, we are, we will be addressing it. We're thinking about how to do it, but it, it's not. It's our focus this year is going to be more about abortion hurts women and for the um, for the vote, to get the vote, because it is an election year, and it's very important that we attack this issue on all, all fronts, including our politics. So, so that's our focus for this year. So tell me, who will be headlining your walk? Um, well, we have Lila Rose. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with her. Um, and we're very excited to have Kaya Jones. She was an original member of the Pussycat Dolls uh, singing group. Um, a lot of people haven't heard of them, but it's. Uh, but I know at my age, I have heard of yes. them because they yes, were. Yes, I know exactly who they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they sold like 15 million albums, and they were very big in the day. And she's going to be one of our speakers because every year we have at least one person give their abortion story, and Kaya has had three abortions, and. She she has had a major conversion, and we can't wait to hear her story. She's going to be telling us about that. And then we also have uh, Kimberly Hankel. She's going to be talking about fostering and adoption because not alone has that it's a personal issue with her. She's adopted four, I think, four kids, and 
she is going to be talking about how important it is for us to step out in faith and, and foster and adopt children. And of course, every year, I mean, it's, he's one of our staples, Reverend Ch Clenard Childress will be with us. Um, he's always gets the crowds going. He's always the last speaker of the rally, and he's just an amazing speaker. So he's going to be uh, our fourth speaker. And we're going to give the Gianna Mola Award to Father Joseph Fessio, who has been a bit the pro-life movement since he was a young priest and been in jail. Uh, he's, he's, he's our chaplain, and so we're going to be giving him the award this year. Well, that sounds like a really well-rounded program. You, you're hitting all the, all the major things. But let me bring you back to Kaya for a moment, because sure. um, I find I have always found the, the, the stories of, uh, of grief and, uh, and then eventual recovery from post-abortive women to be very moving. And it sounds like you include that every year. Why, why do you feel that this is so important to include? Oh, my goodness. I mean, we started the Walk for Life 20 years ago with the theme of Abortion Hurts Women. We were going, we were um, a sister event to the March for Life, which focused mainly on um, the political side. And we wanted to do something out here that um, was always on a Saturday. They were always on a weekday. So we were doing like a sister event. And from the very beginning, every single year, we have a story about somebody who, how much abortion has hurt them. And that's been our main focus for the entire 20 years and when I heard Kaya's story I heard her on a podcast a while back and I knew immediately that I had to try to get her because it is I mean she had one at 16 she had one while she was at the with the pussycat dolls and then she had one from rape and so she has and then she had such a beautiful conversion and it's so important to hear from the people that abortion affects that what it has done to them them and their lives and their families. And so I'm very, very adamant that every year we have one of them, at least one story about how abortion hurts women. So you're not a believer that abortion is a liberating experience and that it's something that lifts women to equality with men? No. Why, why, no, no, why no. do you think? Now you, you're a person who's obviously been, you know, intensely involved in the pro-life movement for a long time. Why do you think that 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 idea resonates so well with with people. Well, I think that our culture is so promiscuous nowadays, and people want to be quote unquote free. And so, when they make when they do something that results in the of a of a life, they want the freedom quote unquote to to keep partying and keep a. I don't know. It, it is to me. It's it's so unwarranted because. Even if you get pregnant when uh, the crisis pregnancy, there are so many options out there. There are so many options for that child. Murder shouldn't be one of them. Killing that child should not be one of them. I mean, there are so many people waiting to adopt. There's so many religious orders. Like Mother Teresa, she said, any child, bring any child to me and I will take them. She has houses in every state. She has houses in every country. So... They're right there, right there, just her alone makes abortion unnecessary because you just give the birth to, you know, give birth to your child and then give it to a loving home. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I go off on a soapbox no, here. No, <laughs> no, it's, it's so, it, it's such a, such a, such an important thing to, to keep reiterating that abortion, abortion is, is the way that women end up paying for the promiscuity of men. Right. And exactly. it's, it's almost like men, 
it's almost I don't want to I don't want to bash on men because I love men and and <laughs> we all have amazing husbands, brothers, fathers, sons. Yes. Uh, but it's almost like the unscrupulous men of the world won the feminist revolution, right? Like they're like, oh yeah, we'll yeah we'll support you, but you know yeah go be free, but then you'll have to pay with your own children and exactly. and with the grief that grief that you carry around with you for the rest of your life and. And your lack of belief in yourself, which is what I've heard from many post-abortive women who, who have, you know, they no longer believe in them in themselves as moral agents because they, you know, they fell, they succumbed to that, or they fell for that for that terrible lie that the that the culture feeds them. Exactly, and and there are so many women out there who have had abortions and then were not able to conceive again. So they carry around with them the weight of that's the child that I could have had, mm-hmm. or so so many different scenarios like that, that 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 gives so much grief to women who have been through this. And it's when I hear women who have had abortions who celebrate it, I just know deep down it's not true that they that they're hurting as much as the next person. It just they're just trying to cover up the the pain with uh with the quote-unquote freedom that uh you know the abortion industry provides for them so it is it is a horrible horrible thing that we kill our children and this country and around the world and it's a it's child sacrifice and Mm -hmm. plain and simple the you know i i think it's also important to talk about men suffering i've i've talked to men who have suffered terribly after abortion especially when it's completely taken away from their, their, they have no, you know, the decision is out of their hands entirely and, and they, they lose a child like a woman loses a child. Have you had that experience too? Yes, we've had speakers at the walk before. We had couples before who um, who addressed the fact that uh, the father had no, he had no ch- say in it. They had no, no say at all in about what happened to their children. And that's, that's a crime too. Um, there's, it's just on so many fronts that abortion hurts families and people and, uh, all over. So, yeah. You know, you mentioned the Reverend, the Reverend Childress. Is it Childress or Childress? How do you pronounce that? Childress. Childress. So he's the founder of blackgenocide.org. Yes. Tell us about yeah. that. Cause I'm very interested in that subject. Yes, well, I mean, he he speaks out very eloquently and powerfully about the fact that the the majority of abortions are performed on uh, the black women, and it's disproportionate to the to the white the white women. So he tries to point out because the Planned Parenthood, a lot of abortion providers target minority neighborhoods mm-hmm. and they, they, that's where they set up shop. That's where they, they go for the, the poor, the poorest of the poor. So, so yeah, he's very eloquent. He makes so many good, great points. He has all the facts and figures. He's, um, he's a leading voice in the fact that, that abortion mainly hurts black women. That's that's something that um, that flies in the face, right, of the, the the cultural push, which is to say that abortion is even more liberating for women who are marginalized for for their race or marginalized for their social status or or because they're poor. Um, but he must make a very convincing case that that's actually not true. Exactly, exactly, and and if you listen to some of his past talks, he makes that point so 
eloquently and so powerfully because he has all the statistics and he has all the stories of 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 the Amer the African American community's pain from abortion and so yes we, we that, that's why we have him back almost every year I think he's only missed one year out of our 20s so he's um he's he's been with us since year one it makes you wonder right in a in a culture in the black in the American black culture how much pain there is to go around and how 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 great the, the how great the ramifications must be of, yeah. of such a of such an abortion holocaust that goes on every year in in that community exactly exactly and and he's he's the leading voice in the in the fight against that so we've gotta we've gotta do our part and support him and all others who are working on you know tearing down that <laughs> that wall so yeah now, you also mentioned Dr. Kimberly Henkel, who is going to be talking about fostering and adoption. And obviously, adoption is the loving option. And that's my favorite sign that I always carry. I have an adoptive child. And one of my children is, is adopted. And when we go to our marches, that's the one she carries. And oh, that's, that's beautiful. It is. And she's been going. I, we adopted her from China. And when she was just a, a little girl in a stroller, she, we, I think we'd only been home from China for a couple months. Yeah, because we brought her home in October. And the first week, I took her to her march in January. And there she was in the stroller um, at her first march. And, and how wonderful it feels, right, when you know that a child that could have ended that their life could have been ended in, in in violence is instead being loved and cherished and and raised in a in a loving family. Exactly, and there's just so many children in need of that of, of people to step up to to foster or adopt or both. And so it's just, I think her message is very powerful because she's done it herself. You know, she's she's gone through that, and she's talks about the fact that giving a child a family, a supportive family situation makes all the difference in the world in the child's future life. And if we could uh, take all the children at risk and give them good loving homes, uh, the society would be hugely benefited by that. So yeah, she has a very important message. We have a strange schizophrenic society right now where people are mm, uh, ordering children to order the, uh, through surrogacy. And at the same time, there are children languishing without homes. Um, that's I find that very schizophrenic and unpleasant to think about, right? Yeah, exactly. How wonderful that you are focusing on adoption and, and, and foster care on that. Now tell me about Lila Rose. What will she be talking about, do you think? Um, she'll probably be talking about all the current events in the pro-life movement um, because she's upfront up in, in 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 everything the pro-life movement, um, all the cause of the pro-life movement, because she's part of live action. And so she'll probably give us an update on everything that's happening through their organization. Um, basically, I'm giving her free reign, so <laughs> she's I'm not she'll sure exactly. <laughs> yeah. She's a great speaker, and she's uh, and we we're really looking forward to see what she has to share with us. So the West Coast Walk for Life is uh, having its twentieth episode, its twentieth uh, uh, journey. What has changed in in these twenty years? Has it have you been growing? Have has what's different over these twenty years? 
Well, we started out with 7,000, and that was um, had a lot to do with Gavin Newsom because he was a mayor at the time, and he, he came out so strongly against us in the media that um, all the pro-lifers got to hear about us. <laughs> so oh. he, he, so didn't, we, wait, he didn't want you to march, or he was sort of casting no, aspersions no, on was, you? He was very upset about the fact that we're, we were doing a walk for life in San Francisco in his city because at the time he was mayor. And um, so, yeah, no, they had official city proclamations against us. They had a rally where him and Camilla Harris were speaking at the op- rally opposing us at the same time as our rally. And then they started walking um, to interfere with our walk. This was the first year. And they were, we were, they were outnumbered. I mean, we were double their size and they were so nasty. It was so horrible that even Planned Parenthood and now and all the organizations who supported that first um, counter rally, they decided that never again, they've never ever supported coming out against us since then because they looked so bad with all the cursing and, and yelling and throwing things and you know sexual gyrations. And here's all these beautiful little families and beautiful, uh, gentle souls walking and these just like, oh, it was horrible, uh, you know, the, the opposition. So they've never come out officially against us ever since that first year. Uh, after that first year, we grew quite a bit every single year. Uh, before COVID, we were up to like 50,000. And of course, COVID put, shut down everything. And we're the, I think, I think, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think we were the only walk that continued even through COVID. Um, so, so we and we were very surprised. We had a few thousand people join us during COVID to 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 walk for life, and and after the walk, we're now growing back up. But it's it's taking a while. I think people are still scared. People are still weary of of all the protesters and COVID, and so I think we're now between like like I said I think earlier between twenty and thirty thousand. But every year we're growing back up. So, but to me, it's not even about the numbers. To me, it's just that the people who do come that they get something out of it that they take it back with them to where they you know where they can proclaim the message to wherever they came from well eva montine co-chair of the walk for life west coast i wish you the best and we will be accompanying you on january 20th 20th in our prayers and in our hearts uh, for all all these wonderful um changes of heart for everybody who sees you and and, and feels that love for the pro-life movement, for children, for mothers, for fathers, for families. So thank you for being a part of that and making it happen. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the show, Edward. Thank you, Casey. Good to be with you again. Here in the United States and across the world, in fact, all of us uh, were very much aware that uh, Pope Benedict's health was failing. Of course, he's very elderly, so every day is a gift. Uh, When people get to be that age, um, we're all mourning all across the world of the great man, the, the great saint. I think we can we can almost surely call him that. 
Tell us what is, I know you're in Rome, tell us what is the situation in Rome? What's, what's the feeling in Rome around the death of this great man? Well, I think a mixture of both solemnity and also a great sort of appreciation and, and in some ways joy looking back on his life and the great uh, legacy that he leaves the church. There's a sort of mixture of sadness and, and joy at this, at this event. And his body is still lying in state as we speak? It is, yes. It's been there since uh, Monday morning and will be there until 7 o'clock tonight on Wednesday. Uh, yeah. Okay, this this uh, recording, we're recording this in advance. This will air after the funeral, and the funeral is on okay. Thursday the 5th. I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's on Thursday the 5th. Um, yes, yes. And so what what do we ex- what do you expect to see with the funeral? What kind of funeral will this be? Maybe a lot of this has been hashed out in the news, but may- maybe many of our listeners... Um, are not not aware of the details. Maybe by then they'll have seen it. <laughs> so maybe this is old news. Yeah. But what uh, what do you think is going to happen with around the funeral? Well, it's going to be um, as uh, the Vatican spokesman said, Matteo Bruno. It's going to be a simple and solemn ceremony. It's not going to be um, particularly traditional, surprisingly enough, given uh, despite Benedict's uh, strong preference for tradition. But it's going to be much more of a sort of simple. Uh, affair. It's, going, it's not going to be. It's not going to be the Roman canon of the mass in the uh, funeral. It's going to be Eucharistic prayer three, which is uh, much shorter. So it'll be fairly, fairly straightforward and short. And a few other trappings that would normally be given to a pope at a funeral have not been included because, of course, he's not pope anymore, and he wasn't uh, for the last nearly ten years of his life. Is this the first time that the church has has laid to rest a pope emeritus? It is, I believe. Well, there was, of course, uh, Pope Celestine V back in the 13th century, who uh, who was buried uh, by his successor. Uh, but he was actually, um, unfortunately, kind of resigned in disgrace. Although he was later rehabilitated and later made a saint. But that means that uh, his funeral, I don't think, was even public. I believe it. it. It, of course, happened, but it wasn't made public. Oh, so that was a long time ago. So this is, we're forging new ground here, but it's ground that we may have to walk again, correct? I mean, as people are living uh, into more advanced ages, we may find ourselves uh, with the same situation, even with Pope Francis or his successor, where somebody um, with all the, with all the, with all the desire that they might have in their heart to continue in the, in the, in that position, they may not be able to. That's right. I mean, there's often talk about this, this becoming a more regular um, sort of uh, sequence of events because, as you say, people are getting older um, and they, they live longer in a way that they didn't before. And so, um, and also often now, uh, those who do live longer tend to perhaps lose um, mental abilities and, and uh, certain um, consciousness or awareness. And so that, that could be a problem going forward. And I think, in a way, Benedict kind of laid the the pathway for that, that possibility at least for, for for popes to retire. So certainly that's something that Francis has always said and said he may do himself, although I think it's unlikely at this stage that he would resign. I have heard some people be very critical about Pope Benedict um, since at the time of his death and since then, um, and it saddens me very much. Um, they they rake up old um, old accusations of him I don't even want to mention it on the air, but uh, terrible things about him participating in, 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 in the Nazi system when he was very young. Um, other things like saying that he, he should have stayed on, he shouldn't have resigned. What do you make of, of this 
I, I think sort of shameful um, raking up of ugly things after a man's death. Well, I think it's a great shame that even during his life, um, Benedict, who's, as Cardinal Archbishop Genswein, his long-serving personal secretary, has said, was so often misunderstood. And, um, and also, also that he, he drew enemies um, precisely because he upheld the church's teaching. And, and just as Christ did, uh, people hate that. People hate, uh, some people hate the truth. The mm-hmm. devil hates the truth. And, um, and I think a lot of that opposition to him uh, has come from the simple fact that he did uphold the teachings of Christ in a very faithful um, and strong way. And, uh, and he also had a great innocence about him, which, uh, which I think also attracts, uh, seems to attract at least a certain opposition, unfortunately. Um, he had a very much childlike innocence, which, which was very uh, a mark of his holiness. And uh, that too, I think, provoked um, provoked a devilish reaction, if you might say. Archbishop Genswein has also said in recent days that uh, the devil was very much present um, as an attack on Benedict throughout his life, certainly through his later life. And uh, as I say, I think that's probably the reason why. It must have been extremely painful for him to, for that kind of martyrdom, it's a kind of extended martyrdom, um, to hold fast to the truth, to be so so firm and so clear um, about the teachings of Christ and and and, and the beautiful mm-hmm. way that the church explains them and holds fast to them, um, and how we can also and I think what was for me was very special about Pope Benedict was the way that he was able to explain the way that we can live in a world that's not allied to the truth, but but live in truth and also with tolerance, right? To have um, tolerance for yeah. others who, who who cannot comprehend. Exactly, and that was his great strength. I mean, he was a great teacher. He was he was able to convey these very complex, um, or rather detailed teachings of the church uh, in a profoundly simple and profound way, and and in a beautiful way too. He was very much interested in conveying the beauty of the faith, the beauty of Christ, and the beauty of truth, of course. And uh, and I think that resonated with a lot of people today who, in societies which have so often forgotten that God exists or live as if God doesn't exist, um, need that. And that for for them, he was a shining light, a real light light for the world in the way he taught. And uh, that in the, as the world becomes more dark in the in light of secularism and turning away from God, so his teaching became even brighter. And uh, I think that's what you're seeing now as we as we reflect on his great teaching legacy. He started his pontificate very much against um, what what he considered the greatest scourge of our times, which is moral relativism. He spoke out against it right away. Um, although, you know, looking back at, at what he had written before, he was, a, he, is a pro, he was a prolific writer, obviously, before he became Pope and an amazing theologian. He was always very much um, writing about that, that, the terrible conundrum of, of living in a world that's ruled by moral relativism and, and how it disassociates us from, from the truths that, that, that we need to sustain our spirit and, and to sustain all the wonderful things about being a human, right? Like, like our families and, and the way that we, we can love each other and help each other um, mm. get through this life. But he, he started his pontificate very much um, denouncing moral relativism and its dangers. They called him the Pope's Rottweiler before he was before he became Pope. 
Why? How? How much will he be missed just just because of that clarity? Because I think since Pope Francis became Pope, that kind of um, that kind of um, that shining light of of clarity has 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 been missed by many Catholics. Yes, it has. That's um, exactly, and I think that that was his, as I say, his great legacy was that ability to to transmit the faith. As you say, in a, in a very relativistic age, he was very strong on that particular element. And he, one of his greatest um, focus or focal points was the fact that faith goes together with reason, and there's a harmony between the two. For him, you cannot have one without the other. Faith, faith, and reason go together. And I think that was a great part of his teaching, which he left behind. Uh, and also, I mean, it was a big part of his famous Regensburg speech, which of course upset the Islamic world. But his main point in that speech was really to say that as the further the West goes along the path of reason without faith, the more it's going to clash with Islam, which is uh, more faith than it is to do with reason. And so um, he foresaw that clash becoming ever greater because of those two diverging uh, philosophies that have been sort of dominant in both the West and Islam. So to have these great insights, which were very relevant to our times, and uh, and I think, um, yeah, some prophetic. He was very much a prophetic voice. I, I reread his his Regensburg speech at his death because um, I remember very vividly the way that he was attacked for that, the way that he was denounced all across the world, mm. um, blamed for any possible in, uh, terrorist attacks that might take place, and the and the clash of the, the Christian and Islamic civilization going forward was all going to be laid at his feet because of this this speech at a you know this very academic and very thoughtful and very deeply theological. Uh, speech that he gave at Regensburg, um, and it occurred to me that he he was he's it was as you say addressed to he he addressed the the issue of Islam and faith and reason, um, but also it was very prophetic for us in the West because so much has happened um, since then that shows us that we have uh, by abandoning faith in a sense we've also lost reason because so many things that are that are being uh, told to us that we must believe and that we must acknowledge are very far away from reason. The things that we know by yes. logic that we can sense with our eyes and, and understand just by virtue of having an intellect. Exactly. I think when he said reason in that context, he meant not really a true reason. The true reason comes with um, when it's joined by faith. <laughs> and I think his, his view was that when you just base it on scientific facts or scientific reasoning, um, it's inadequate for our for, for understanding the uh, meaning of life and so many other questions. So, so yes, exactly. And that, that shows just how I think he went deeper and showed this importance of faith and reason together. And, uh, yeah, it, it was something that I think Western society particularly is lacking. Is lacking yeah, because it's one, he's, he was saying when you, uh, faith and reason are, are, are enjoined, right? They, <laughs> reason leads to faith. Right. They're not opposing. They're very much working together. And God is, God is reason, right? He's the great logos. Um, and then abandoning, but when we abandon faith, we even lose our reason because we stop, we stop making those those connections between what we can see and and taste and prove and with 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 experiments and the great reason behind all of it. Yes, exactly. 
Um, I think, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but this is, we need to talk to a philosopher or theologian about this, but I think his emphasis was on uh, that it leads to positivism, that leads to a certain scientific reasoning, which, as I say, it's inadequate. It doesn't, it doesn't go to the depths of reason and, in, and how reason should truly function. And that can only come with, when it's backed by Christian faith and faith in, in Jesus Christ. Is Rome right now very full of pilgrims? Are you? I know Rome can get very busy around these these big events. Is, are you are you yes. seeing that that fullness and, and excitement in Rome? Very much so. Yes, there's a great number of people in Rome right now, and I think from noon today, uh, this is um, well. We've had so far uh, 160,000 visitors by by Wednesday lunchtime. Uh, just over three days to, to pay their respects to, to Benedict's body. And uh, and, and where has his, where exactly has his body been lying in state? So it's been in the, the front altar, just in front of the main altar in the Basilica of St. Peter's Basilica. Oh. The, um, the, uh, the, the altar of the confession is called the Baldacchino, the very big mm-hmm. uh, central altar of the church. He's just in the front of that. Uh, which is the same place that they placed uh, John Paul II to actually go. Oh, so I can just imagine the throngs that outside in the in the in Great Saint Peter's Square. How how wonderful that yes. must be to see. Yes, and and the long queues and uh, and also a lot of journalists here. I think a thousand have been accredited to to cover this. So it's going to be very much uh, well covered in the in the media, I think. But what's interesting, Gracie, is that that the um, the Vatican is only. Um, officially invited two two delegations from Italy and uh, Germany, uh, but all the other heads of state are free to come in a, on a personal basis. So they're not being invited in a, in a state uh, official way. One of the visitors that's coming um, in an unofficial basis to to the funeral is Cardinal Zen. And you've written a lot about him. Apparently he was given clearance so that he could attend the funeral traveling from Hong Kong. He, Cardinal Zen pointed out in a recent piece, he wrote about Benedict's stance on China, how important Pope Benedict was uh, to the fate of Catholics in China, and that he feels mm. that Pope Benedict will be a powerful intercessor for China in heaven. What do you expect uh, from Cardinal Zen's visit? Yeah, well, he's, he's, um, it's, it's, um, uh, there's a lot of um, happiness he's coming because it was, it was probably uh, it was difficult for him to get out of China given that he's, uh, he's been... Uh, in court lately for, for, for alleged crimes which he denies um, and uh, was found guilty of these crime of fraud which, he's, which he denies and strongly denies and so there supporters. Uh, but yes, it's, um, it's, a, it's very interesting that he has come. I think he felt he wouldn't be back to Rome. He's now 90, so I think he he's already made his last trip. So what will be interesting, I think, when he does come is whether he'll get a meeting with Pope Francis who famously denied him a meeting the last time he came. So it's, it'll be interesting to see if that happens. Uh, but yes, it's, it's, um, Benedict was very, very close to China. He, of course, wrote the famous or composed the, the famous uh, prayer for the Chinese, Chinese Catholic back in, uh, the, I think it was tw- 2009. And uh, it's usually a world day of, of prayer for China. Um, so yes, Benedict, uh, Cardinal Zen was very close to him and found him a great supporter of Chinese Catholics. So, uh, so yes, it's great to be coming. Well, thank you for your time today, Edward. Uh, we'll continue to keep uh, Pope Benedict in our prayers, and, and we'll ask for his intercession. And thank you. Please make sure to our listeners to keep 
up on all things Vatican with Edward's analysis at ncregister.com, reporting always from Rome. Thank you, Edward, and Happy New Year. Thank you, Gracie. Happy New Year to you, too. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday. As the Church celebrates the solemnity of the Epiphany of the Lord, His manifestation to all the nations, represented by the wise men coming from afar. In recent days, the importance of wisdom has become even more obvious. We've had the presidents of two of our most prestigious universities resign because of their incapacity to see and state the obvious and condemn Hamas's October 7th terrorist attacks, any and all calls for the genocide of Jews, whatever the context, and anti-Semitism, blinded by modern Marxist ideologies that have infected many places of higher education. We've likewise had a senior Vatican official charged with defending and promoting the Catholic faith unbelievably release a declaration the week before Christmas on blessing same-sex couples and those in irregular situations, changing the focus from the good news of great joy for all the people to the obviously confusing headlines of whether the church is changing her teaching on sexual sin and marriage. And in a presidential election year, Many are more prone to see the evident lack of wisdom in many of those competing for our support and in their policies and ideas. All of these situations and others reveal the crucial importance of wisdom in an age in which political, cultural, and even religious leaders are increasingly confused. That's why it's so important for us in the Solemnity of the Epiphany to learn from the men whom tradition is always called wise, to go on pilgrimage with them to Bethlehem, to learn from them invaluable lessons not just about how we're called to relate to the coming of God into the world, but on how to grow wise. We can ponder five lessons. The first thing we learn from the wise men is the importance of seeking God. To be wise, we must look at things from God's perspective, and that requires effort. When the wise men saw the star at its rising, they not only interpreted that God was trying to communicate something to them in general, but that God was specifically heralding the birth of the newborn king in the east, who would be a universal king. That they had picked up from the Sibylline prophecies. 2,000 years ago in the deserts of the Middle East and on the seas, people were highly dependent on the fixed stars in the sky as references for their direction. They firmly believed that God had made them this way for this reason. Whenever anything happened in the sky that was new, like the appearance of a comet or a meteor shower, or planets or stars shining more brightly, the ancients thought that it had to be or some message from God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. When they saw the star at its rising, they didn't respond as curious astrologers, but as those who hungered to find what they sought. Led by the star and their simple trust in its supposed meaning, the wise men went on a journey toward the Holy Land. We don't know how long their pilgrimage took, but the gospel gives us an indication that it wasn't brief. After Herod asked them the exact time of the appearance of the star, and then a short time later, after they didn't return to him, he proceeded to kill every boy in Bethlehem under two years of age. So the time of their preparation and journey to get there probably took 18 to 24 months. Whether they walked or had the help of animals, we don't know, but they came. They made a journey of many months each way because they believed God was speaking to them through the star. 
Anyone seeking wisdom must be willing to make such a journey seeking God and the truth too. The second thing that the wise men show us is that the search for wisdom is a pilgrimage we're called to make together. The wise men were ready to move, even though they must have had good lives where they were since they could afford a long journey and precious gifts at their arrival. They accounted being with the newborn universal king more important than staying where they were. They were willing to leave everything behind and make a long, difficult journey following the star they had seen in the east. But they grasped that this was an intellectual and existential journey they were not supposed to make alone. They knew that in order to make the destination, they needed each other. But more than that, they wanted to journey together. Likewise, the search for wisdom and the Catholic pilgrimage of faith are not do-it-yourself things. In an age of individualism, we recognize we need others' help. Just as much as the pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago, we need our fellow travelers. Spouses need each other. Children need their parents. We all need our friends and spiritual siblings. Parishioners and priests need each other. The church's pilgrimage is a family journey done in communion, trying not to leave any family member behind, but getting everyone moving, which we help each other to find God, learn better who we are, and how we're supposed to live. Third, the journey of the Magi shows us that we need to be guided on the path of wisdom and faith. They got to Bethlehem because they allowed themselves to be led by the star. They were attentive and obedient to the guidance God had given. Likewise, we all need to be docile to guidance. God guides us, of course, in sacred scripture, which we should study more assiduously than the wise men study the stars. God guides us through the church, and hence the catechism is a compass for our conscience. A third guide are the lives of the saints, those who have made the journey, who show us the way and accompany us by their prayers. All of this guidance can be surprising and opposed to conventional wisdom that often is not wise at all. When the wise men found Jesus, he was far from what they must have been expecting. They naturally were anticipating finding the newborn king in a palace, not in a stable, wrapped in royal purple, not in swaddling clothes, surrounded by courtiers, not by animals and shepherds. And when they found him as he was, they didn't turn back. They were willing to let their own categories be changed by God rather than fit God into their own categories. They needed to change their ideas about God, man, wisdom, and power. In short, they needed to change themselves and see that God's power is not like the powerful of the world. His wisdom is not like the wise of the world. Likewise, throughout life, we must learn through God's guidance that God's ways are not as we imagine them or might wish them to be and learn how to conform our ways to his, especially when he asks us to model our life on the mystery of his life-giving cross. Fourth, the wise men teach us about the importance of adoration. The greatest gift they gave the baby Lord Jesus was not gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but themselves. See, Matthew tells us that they prostrated themselves and did him homage. They adored him. It's not enough to know about the Lord or to meet the Lord. They needed to love him with all their mind, heart, soul, strength, time, and gifts. If the fear or the awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the true sacrificial love for the Lord is the way wisdom grows. This leads us to the subject of prayer and adoration. St. Jesus, before whom they prostrated themselves, comes to our churches on the altar and waits for us in the monstrance in the tabernacle. He wants to fill us with his wisdom. Like the wise men, to grow in this gift, we must prostrate ourselves in humble homage before him, placing ourselves and our gifts in his service. 
prayerfully receiving the blessing he seeks to give us in his humility and majesty. Lastly, the wise men show us how the encounter with Christ is meant to change us. St. Matthew says that the wise men returned home by another route, which many saints and scholars have said points to far more than a detour to evade Herod. It indicates rather that they returned changed, different than they arrived, converted more and more to the new king's ways and categories, to the way of wisdom, of faith, of Christ-like love. The Lord similarly wants to change us. Every time we journey to Mass, every time we come together with others on the pilgrimage to bring him our gifts and sacrifices, but especially the offering of our whole life and prayerful homage, we're supposed to leave changed, made wiser by the word we've heard, changed by our truly praying the collects and petitions of the Mass, transformed by becoming one with the Lord on the inside. Every Mass is meant to change our life forever, send us back by different routes, transformed for the better, following not only, no longer our own way, but following Jesus' own path up close. This is what the world most needs. As Christ transforms us, he sends us out to transform the church, the culture, and the world. Our contemporaries need us once again to be the wise men who show them how to live, who indicate to them how to become wise. We do this by pointing to the star of the tabernacle lamp and to the altar candle, where the continuous epiphany of the Lord takes place, and by encouraging those we know to join us on the journey to find Christ and enter into life-changing communion with him. God is calling each of us to be those modern Melchiors, Balthasars, and Caspers, and to journey together. And he wants to give us at Mass the wisdom, grace, and help he knows we need to fulfill this mission. So we prepare to fall to our knees this Sunday before the same Lord, before whom the wise men prostrated themselves as a poor, vulnerable infant wrapped in swaddling clothes. God wants us, like them, to discover the glory of God in the highest and the true road to peace on earth. Let us, therefore, go with haste to Bethlehem and let us bring the lessons of Bethlehem to a world that needs that wisdom. Come, let us adore him. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 